Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, Dr. John Neustadt and I talk about healing osteoporosis, cultivating bone health, and the power of building supportive daily habits to maximize our longevity. Dr. Neustadt is the founder and president of the dietary supplement company, Nutritional Biochemistry, Inc., and of NBI Pharmaceuticals. Through NBI Pharmaceuticals, Dr. Neustadt received more than a dozen U.S. FDA orphan drug designations for the potential treatment of rare diseases using natural products. He hosts the Delivering Health podcast, is a member of the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, Corporate Advisory Roundtable, and is vice president of the California Naturopathic Doctors Association. Dr. Neustadt earned his naturopathic medical degree from Bastyr University, where he received the Founders Award for Academic and Clinical Excellence. Dr. Neustadt is a frequent speaker at medical conferences, has written four books, and over 100 published research reviews. He was recognized by Elsaver as the top 10 cited author in the world for his work. His latest book is the Amazon bestseller, Fracture Proof Your Bones, A Comprehensive Guide to Osteoporosis. In this episode of Heal, John Neustadt and I discuss demystifying bone health and emphasizing that bone is living tissue and can be restored like any other part of the body. We explore the idea of neuroplasticity and how this applies not only to the brain, but also to the body's ability to heal and restore health. We talk about how forming healthy habits is about making it easier to do the right thing and emphasize the role of the limbic system and emotions in shaping our habits. Your biochemistry, your neurology, it wants to thrive. It wants to do a great job for you. And so when you give it that opportunity and in part of that opportunity is removing things that damage that, yeah. you're stacking the deck in your favor. You're making it easier for you to achieve your goals. We also touch on the fact that willpower alone can only take you so far in forming new habits. We look at how environment plays a significant role in well-being and how our genes are influenced by our environment and lifestyle choices. We underscore that genetics are much less the issue of how well we thrive in older age as it is our physical and social environment and our daily lifestyle that plays a more significant role. I, I believe most people have the mindset in our culture that they're going to live their life and it's pretty unhealthy. They're going to sit all day. They're going to eat crap. And then for a half hour, a few times a week, they're going to do something healthy yep. and that's going to make up for it. And that's not how the body works. You can't exercise away a bad diet and you can't eat away a, a sedentary, sedentary lifestyle, lifestyle. Yep. with a healthy diet. Dr. Neustadt provides specific insights into strategies for improving bone health, including the role of awareness, simplicity, and positive reinforcement in habit change. What dietary and supplement considerations can prevent and even reverse osteoporosis and osteopenia, the role of hormones and hormone replacement therapy in bone health, and how your gut health may be the secret weapon to strong bones. Join us. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. John Neustadt, thank you so much for being here today. This is such an honor and a privilege to get to be with you. You have quite an extraordinary career behind you and have been a naturopathic physician I've been able to look up to over the years. Our paths crossed a long time ago when That's I was right. just a brand new baby doctor in Bozeman, Montana, my first practice. You were part of the, the Montana Association of Naturopathic Physicians back then. So it's really good to be with you again. It is great to reconnect and it, it feels like a lifetime ago. It's been fun <laughs> before you started recording to 
to catch up and like, okay, where are you now? What are you doing? It's, it's been, that was nice. Yeah, so exactly. To this conversation. Good. And now you're predominantly based out of California. Yeah. I'm in San Diego. Awesome. Excellent. So we have so many things we could talk about today. And, you know, first and foremost, you have just recently published a pretty extraordinary book on bone health, Fracture Proof Your Bones, A Comprehensive Guide to Osteoporosis. It's an Amazon bestseller. Uh, you're also a fellow naturopathic physician, as I mentioned. You have your own Nutritional Biochemistry Incorporated supplement company and also NBI Pharmaceuticals and really been a prolific published author putting out information into the health network, which I very much appreciate your leadership in our profession and our community. So what I would like to start with here is there's this crossover point, right? The reason why I created Heal was to amplify the conversation of what does it actually take to heal our bodies and to demystify it, to take the, you know, I've been given a diagnosis or I'm dealing with these symptoms and I can either just Google it, which is sometimes terrifying what you find on the internet, or, you know, I go to my primary care physician who may or may not be very well versed in reversing illness or how to heal a condition that's going on in the body. Whereas that happens to be an area that is naturopathic physicians is kind of the cornerstone of our world. But then it's like, how do we demystify it? What what are the actual things people need to address, learn, build skill sets in to be able to get their bodies back to optimal health? And what we were just talking about before we hit record is one of the most critical areas that I think we don't talk enough about is developing healthy habits. We can so easily get pulled into what is NADH plus doing and what's the newest peptide injection therapy or what diet is the exact specific diet that's right for my condition. But there's a point for me in my practice with my clients where it's quite frankly, pick a diet and stick with it. And then it's the stick with it part. It's the creation of how are you going to rebuild your lifestyle to be a match for healing and for health. And this is an area that you've started to really dive into, positive psychology and building healthy habits. So I would love to pick your brain about what you're discovering and what you're finding, because whether it's osteoporosis or diabetes or an autoimmune disease, you know, this is a critical part, not just what supplements to take or what diet to follow or what actions, but how do we actually make that real in our day-to-day -day life? So this is a huge topic, but I am super curious, like, where do people begin? How do we even start down this road? So first, I want to say that I, I love your approach and this idea of wanting to demystify these, these concepts and topics that, that can be quite complicated. I mean, people get whole PhDs in biochemistry and psychology. My process, why I've written and published so much, because part of my learning process, and, and I love learning is that if I can communicate it succinctly to somebody in writing, that's when I know I actually have learned it and I really understand it. So when it comes to whether it's bone health or whether it's healthy habits, the sort of most fundamental bottom line is, a, is the concept of plasticity. So there's a concept in, in, in neurology called nerve plasticity and or neuroplasticity, meaning your brain has neural networks, your body has neural networks that have formed and they're not set in stone. They can be changed. You can reform new ones. You can change existing 
one. So your actual neurons and the connections in your brain are firing differently. Similarly with bone, we used to be taught that you know, once you re reach peak maturity, you've reached your, your maximum height that you're going to grow. You've achieved your maximum bone density that you may have, that it's just a downward one-way street down to finally you just croak and die. And there's no way to reverse that degeneration. And that's just not true. The, the bone is living tissue. It's a complex tissue that has various components to it. And we can provide the raw materials. We can provide the environment to thrive and grow and to strengthen our bones, reduce fracture risk, reduce osteoporosis risk, reverse osteoporosis, just like we can create the environment to improve our habits, to create healthier habits. And a, a habit is not judgmental. Our brains don't judge whether it's a good habit or a bad habit. The, the fundamental question is, is it helping you reach your goal? If it's not helping you reach your goal, then it's a bad habit. And how do you create new ones? If similarly, if actions or activities are, are creating degeneration in any system of your body, whether it's increasing your heart disease risk or increasing your risk for, for diabetes or, or increasing your risk for osteoporosis and fractures, what then those would be bad habits. Unless of course, that's your goal. So that's the fundamental kind of ideas, this idea of plasticity. There's a lot we can do, lots of options, but understanding the fundamental mechanisms of how those, how that works, of how to how habits are formed, how new habits can be formed, then applying that to whatever area of your life that you want, whether it's business, relationships, health, it just becomes this universal power that you get to reach whatever goal you want. That's fantastic. And I particularly appreciate bringing like neuroplasticity is a conversation that's got a lot of conversation around it and it's been coming up a lot. There's so much happening around the psychological movement, the psychedelic movement of today. There's a lot of emphasis on neuroplasticity, but hearing you actually talk about the plasticity of the bones and that that is a living tissue and that that matrix is something, because that it really is one of those areas where we say, you know, you've got what you've got and there's very little you can do about it. Best we can do is try and slow down the degeneration, degenerative process, but that that actually can be healed rebuilt, we can nourish and, and put those tissues back together is really kind of a, a bit of a brain bender to think differently about what we've been told about how our body operates. So when you look at what you've learned and discovered about how do we build new habits? So we say we identify, okay, I drink too much soda. I actually, you know, I, I just recently had this conversation with somebody who said, you know, what is my best access to reducing my triglycerides? You know, they've noticed that they've gotten quite high and, you know, what are the actual steps I can take? And it's like, I can give the answers of, you know, reduce soda, reduce sugar, reduce alcohol is a very good place to start. But that sort of just leaves people with like, now what do I actually do about that? And I think, you know, commonly what we say is force yourself to do something differently for X number of days and you'll build a new habit. Like, I think I remember hearing, like, if you do the new thing for 21 days, you're building a new habit. Is that even how it works? Like, is that true? So partially the, the duration that the time that it takes is not accurate. There, there's okay. nothing I've ever seen that says you have to do it for this number of days. What is accurate though, is the more you repeat something, 
the more the more it becomes ingrained in your pathways in your brain and the more it starts to become a habit so it's about time and repetition now what is a habit a habit is merely your brain going to the thing that's easiest it takes energy life takes energy when you when you think of something to drink for example you mentioned soda that person immediately is probably thinking the first the first thought that comes to their brain is 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 getting the soda and and where where that is and how to get it but the interesting thing is if you create an environment that makes it just a little bit harder to do some one thing and a little bit easier to do something else and you force yourself to start doing the easier thing then over time, you develop that habit. Your brain starts to think of that other way of being. You, you get that image first. Now, let me just take a step back because I think it's important to understand kind of how the how those pathways work and and how the ner- how those parts of the brain work because our brain is really you know two different brains. So you've got the neocortex, which is the the outside of the brain. People have seen pictures of brains and the the ridges that you can see from the outside. That's the neocortex, and that's your voluntary movement that thinks in words and logic. That's the logical side of your brain. Then deep inside, in the middle of your brain, is the limbic system, and that's the emotional part of your brain. And the emotional part of your brain doesn't think in words. It thinks in pictures and symbols, and it's faster. It fires faster than that part of your brain that is the neocortex, that is the rational, logical part of the brain. In the 1980s, psychology was really focused on the neocortex and and in love with the idea of that you can just will yourself to, to success. In fact, it was the, the, the term that was coined was executive function as though there's somebody in the executive suite of a business, you know, pulling the levers and, and making the decisions for your life. And that's when the slogan, if people know that Nike slogan, just do it, uh, was born. And a little known fact, that slogan, just do it, was not really created by Nike. Somebody saw it in a newspaper article that it was, it was said by a, an inmate on death row in Utah who was about to be executed, and his words were, just do it. Like, just do it already. Wow. And that became their slogan. Wow. Right? Yeah. It's a shift in context. Yep. It's a shift in context. And so part of, of the challenge with that is you can use this executive function and this willpower only so far. And, and then you can't get any further. Even if you say to yourself, I'm going to go you know, to the gym every, every day, or I'm going to work out four days, days a week. And so you go and you go and you're willing your way, you're willing way. Well, people don't last. In fact, gym memberships, their, their business model de- depends on that. You see the, the, the gym memberships go up in the new year with the, with their, what's called new year's resolutions. And then by March, you know, they've, they've gone back down, they've dropped again. The tendency has, has dropped again. And in fact, a research study looked at in England, people who made that were like they, no matter what they did, they were so excited. They signed up. They wanted to join a gym. They had all the willpower in the, the world and they just flailed out. The willpower will not take you so far, you know, far enough. So I, so the, let's, let's take an example then of what I mentioned easier about before about making it easier. So your body then is going to go where your emotions take it, take over time. 
not where you're, where those mental images and emotions are taking you, not where your executive function and your logic is taking you. So if you want to go farther, then you have to make it easier to develop habits so it becomes second nature to do the habit that's going to get you moving in the direction of, of your goal. So let's take, let's take the soda example that, that you mentioned before. So one thing that, that somebody could do, and I like talking to, to, to patients about this and the general public is make it easier to make, to make good choices. Just make it easier. Even if it's five seconds easier or three seconds easier, you're more likely to do that. So if you have soda at the house, you know, people could say, oh, just get the soda out, totally throw it away. And look, that's one option. Or you could take the soda, you could put it all the way in the very, very back corner of your refrigerator behind a bunch of other bottles of stuff. So you've got to dig for it and grab it. But then at eye level, you've got something else that's healthier that, that, that you like. Maybe, maybe you know, I, I don't know what it's called, fizzy water, you know, seltzer water, you know, a flavor that, that you like. So that's easier to just open and grab. It's at eye level. You see it. That's where your, your brain registers first. And it's just easy. So if you make it easier, if you lower that threshold to achieve that, you're, you're going to be more likely to do it. And then over time, it starts to become what you crave. It starts to become what your body knows. It starts to become the new habit. Similarly with exercise, if you want to just make it five seconds easier to exercise instead of putting your, and I did this. So this is how I've developed healthy habits in, in my own life, that instead of having my workout clothes in my closet, so I've got to walk all the way across my room. I've got to get into the closet. I've got to change. I put them in the middle of the floor. I've got to step over. I see them. It's, it's four seconds faster for me. I actually yes, have a that- client who just worked out because she wears pajamas every night and she's like, pajamas and what I wear to the gym are incredibly similar. She started sleeping in her gym clothes and she just wakes up and walks out of the house. And she's like, it literally has made a huge difference. She's going to go sweat in the many ways. Then she puts them in the laundry basket. She puts on fresh gym clothes, goes to sleep, wakes up and walks out of the house in the morning. I was like, that's pretty great. One that I do. And I recommend this to one of my clients is a supplement. I frequently recommend are probiotics and it is often recommended for them to be kept in the refrigerator and that's like the end of the story usually people are like oh yeah i bought a, a pack of those two years ago and they're, they're never still in there right yeah and i know many people have a coffee habit and many people put something in their coffee so if there's like a creamer of some sort i have them put the probiotics right in front of the creamer in the refrigerator and then they always are going to have coffee and they have to go through the probiotics in order to get to the creamer and it's like out it comes in the morning take the probiotic put it back in have your cup of coffee or tea or whatever you're doing and that's another thing of like linking habits together something that's new with something that's already pre-existing how can you actually layer them together so that the new thing starts to get pulled up in the automatic routine that's already there i love it and and similarly you know with the food in the pantry if you come in our house in the pantry at eye level are the the nuts and down way down below because we got teenagers you know at the very bottom in little bins you know you've got the chips and some of those other 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 things but at eye level are the healthy healthy snacks so we're just it's easier to 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 grab them just make your life easier that's are you familiar with the kaizen principle Mm -mm. so there's the book atomic habits came out everyone went kind of nuts over atomic habits and there's some aspects in atomic habits it's actually based in a japanese concept kaizen and Kaizen, you can think of like um, 
many of kind of cultural Japanese traditions is making very small alterations like bonsaiing a tree. You make these small, tiny pruning cuts over 20 years to take a very large tree and keep it small, but yet have it grow in a particular way. You're essentially bonsaiing your life. (laughs) So with this process, the idea is, is that you make a change, but the change is below your brain's threshold of any sort of threat or stress. So the change is so small that even you are like, that's never going to work. Like what, what, why would I even, you know, that's not really going to be enough. But then it's the very small one degree change either each day or each week even or in small incremental steps that starts to build towards something. So at one level, you can be like, well, I still have the cookies and the chips in the pantry. I know I'm going to just grab them anyways. But just that simple change of going from easy to grab eye level to slightly inconvenient down below, that is that Kaizen approach of making just this small alteration. And then there could be one more of like, well, now next time I buy the chips, I'm not going to buy the super fat saturated ones. I'm going to go to a vegetable chip and it's still a chip, but I'm like moving in this direction each time kind of making this elevation until something starts to get. And over the period of time, which you were talking about the longevity of it, you can end up in a very different place than where you started. I I love that. The two things about that one in aviation with airplanes, if you're off by one degree and you fly from LA to New York and you're off the navigation is off by one degree, you're going to end up hundreds of miles away from your destination. Just one degree change over time makes a huge difference. Similarly, you know, it's these small actions done consistently over time that can change, completely change the trajectory uh, of your, of your life. I'd never heard of that, that Japanese uh, concept yeah. before, but uh, it doesn't surprise me. And I, and I love with the, the, the visual of the, of the bonsai tree because that's what I think we should all be striving to do throughout our life is 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 trimming and and pruning and to create the the form the and the function and the beauty and the health that we really want and that our bodies really want and, and remove things you know get things out of our way that that are not serving that yeah yeah and I think there's another thing that you talked about about you know there's time and repetition. And then there's the environment. You know, I was involved in a seminar at one point that was looking at more from like the ontological ways of being of fitness and health, not so much the functional, what diet prescription or what specific things you're going to do, but the 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 more, how are you about your health? And one of the things that they would talk about is, is that your well-being is 100% correlated to the well-being of your environment. And there's statistics around this of that, you know, we will be within 20 pounds of the five people that we spend the most time with. Our eating habits tend to gravitate very similarly to the people we spend the most time with. There's, And I do have clients where one of the big challenges they run into is, is they have a commitment to change their well-being coming from a chronic disease state or whatever their commitment is. They struggle coming up against when spouse, children, family members, live-in roommates and housemates are living a very completely different lifestyle like that pushes up against this challenge point. So I'd love for you to talk a bit more about what does environment do? How do we get to take on that? And what are some tips or things that people can start to look at in order to alter their environment? Great questions. I, I makes me think initially of genetics. There's this phrase that I hear both from the general public patients and general public in the media, 
repeated in the media and, and physicians even. Oh, it's just genetic. Oh, you have osteoporosis. Your mother had it. It's just genetic. Well, the reality is as we get older, genes have less and less of an impact on our overall health. And it's more the environment and the lifestyle that we're living that is going to determine whether or not you develop chronic diseases. There's no osteoporosis gene. Yeah, there are lots of genes that have been studied and researched for that are involved with bone health, just like cardiovascular health, lots of genes involved with that. But there is no constellation of genes or a few genes that have ever been shown to be the major drivers of osteoporosis or the underlying uh, issue that needs to be addressed. Our genes are constantly turning on and off in response to our environment. And genes are just a blueprint. They're the code. They're not the house. And when you give the nutrients, the water, the, the hormones that are around and that they're bathed in, those are constantly turning genes on and off. And osteoporosis fundamentally is a is a disease of imbalance. So we have two major types of cells in the bone, the osteoblast build bone and the osteoclast break bone down. And both are necessary. Both are required for healthy bone. The osteoclast break down old worn out bone and recycle it and the osteoblast build up new healthy bone. And in fact, about every 10 years, you have all new, all new bone is created. And so if you have bone that's being, that's degenerating, then that that's fundamentally that system is fundamentally out of balance and just to say oh it's genetic well that is a throw up my hands i don't know what's going on i have no explanation so let's just say i mean you might as well just say it's a god thing like because there's no nothing we can <laughs> exactly. do yeah. right but the reality is is the research has shown that we are most likely as we get older to adopt a lifestyle exercise, you know, stress that, that people get addicted to stress, stress seems normal, high level seems normal to them and adopt the, the diet in which we were raised with which we were raised, the environment in which we were raised carries on to adulthood because those are habits. That's what's comfortable. Even if they're destructive, people recognize them. Oh, it's just comfortable. It's again, where that habit was formed, where the, where the mind, uh, where the mind goes. And so with, with the, the hell, as you develop healthy habits, whether it's in the realm of improving your diet, getting more sleep, uh, those are all affecting genetic expression and exercising, surrounding yourself by people who build you up and support you instead of create more stress, instead of create more adversity in your life. All of those things are going to start moving you in the direction of your ultimate goal. And that can seem overwhelming because there's just so much like, oh, if you're not already eating this way or not already exercising, where do I start? It doesn't matter where you start. The research has shown that people, for example, who follow a healthy diet or exercise, they're more likely to do other healthy habits, to be healthier in other areas of life, less, less likely to smoke, more likely to get you know, better sleep. You know, everything we know that cumulatively supports your body and your vitality and your, your mood and just gives you a better quality of, of life. And so looking at these individual pieces, it can be overwhelming. Like, oh my God, where do I start? And one of the things you talk about, you know, people who are surrounded by people who are not 
living and modeling healthy ways of being? Well, the reality is, is that we, you have to, people have to start protecting themselves, create healthy boundaries, speak about what they want, how they want to be treated. I like to say people will treat you how you tolerate people treat you and what you tolerate is how people will treat you. And most people have, they get, they tend, I believe to get things build up and then they get really angry instead of just sitting down with somebody and say, you know, when you said this, this is not how I want to be treated. This is what I need to give them the opportunity to give that to you. And over time, you know, if they're willing to do that, then they're a keeper. You know, if they're not, then, you know, you've got to evaluate within each your, your specific situation and the relationship, you know, is there ways for you to carve out, you know, your own, your own space to, to get your, your, your goals met, or does that relationship have to have to change? And when it, when it comes to osteoporosis and bone health, it's very similar. Part of the concept and the idea is removing or minimizing things that can damage bone that create the problems to make it easier for your health to improve. And so one of the big areas, it's a blind spot for conventional physicians and, you know, naturopathic doctors as well. Although I think we're, we're better uh, aware of it is medication induced osteoporosis. There is a mm. long list of medications that damage bone and increase fracture risk. People know about glucocorticoids like prednisone that's used for autoimmune disease, very powerful anti-inflammatory. That is incredibly also powerful at damaging and destroying, destroying bone and increasing osteoporosis and fracture risk. But other medications that doctors aren't aware of like proton pump inhibitors, those acid blocking medications, if people are on those for, for years, after four years, it's associated with a 60% increased risk in hip fractures. And hip fractures are the most dangerous type of fractures. If you're a woman and fracture a hip with osteoporosis, there's up to a 36% chance that you're going to be dead within a year. And 50% of those who survive never regain their full activity level and pain-free life, life that they had before. Similarly, other medications, a huge one now are the SSRIs, the antidepressants, anything that artificially boosts melatonin, Prozac, duloxetine, Wellbutrin, those medications, meta-analyses have been done that show that as, as few as, you know, we're inducing one new fracture for every 14, 15, 14 or 15 women who are taking, or patients who are taking an SSRI. So many, 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 there's a long list. And so evaluating that, reducing the dose or switching to a safer one, or hopefully even getting off the medication all Finding other ways to heal and get to those root source causes. I mean, I've, a yeah. huge part of my practice is, is at people's request, we do it safely. How do we actually improve their health to a level where those pharmaceuticals are just not even needed? You know, it's Absolutely. not, it's no longer necessary. Yeah. And then similar to altering your environment when it comes to creating healthier eating habits or healthier exercise and you know, making it easier. Well, when you do that, when you remove those damaging things from your life, you're just simply making it easier for your body to do the job that it wants to do anyway. Your biochemistry, your neurology, it wants to thrive. It wants to do a great job for you. And so when you give it that opportunity and in part of that opportunity is removing things that damage that. Yeah. You're stacking the deck in your favor. You're making it easier for you to achieve your goals. I want to follow up on something. I You may have said this exactly the way you meant to, but when you said 
with SSRIs and antidepressants that artificially boost melatonin. Did you mean serotonin? Sorry, no. Serotonin. I did. Okay. Thank you for I was, I was like, yeah, I got questions about uh, melatonin, no. but no, I got that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Is the serotonin. And so on this subject, since we're here, you know, what are some of the other things that you have seen in your research and your study and your clinical experience that are kind of an affront to bone density or bone health? I've actually heard some interesting mixed conversations about, you know, one of the most common conversations conventionally is drink milk to increase the calcium for your bones. Uh, and I'm like, I have questions about that. So I'd be very curious, uh, like, what do you see are some of the other components? So I completely love the conversation of, of recognizing the medication induced osteoporosis or osteopenia. What else have you seen that makes a difference? So the big thing that I'm seeing now is people aren't eating enough protein despite the high protein keto diet craze. Yeah. As we get older, your bones and muscles need more protein than even what the USRDA is recommending, that minimum amount of protein. So bone is not just minerals. So people think of calcium, as you mentioned with milk, I think, and there are other minerals too involved. That just gives bone its hardness, its density. A bone density, mineral density test is measures just that component of bone. But as I mentioned earlier, it's a tissue and tissues all have different components to it. There, uh, There's collagen is the major single protein in bone, type one collagen. But then there are 180 to 200 other proteins besides collagen in bone as well. And it's the collagen, it's that extracellular matrix, the non-mineral portions of the bone that give bone what's called its quality. And it's the quality of the bone that gives bone its ultimate strength. In fact, you can take a chicken bone you soak it in vinegar, keep changing out the vinegar so it's fresh. And over a few days, four or five days, all of the minerals will be removed from the bone. It demineralizes the bone. What's left is that extracellular matrix, the proteins, the collagen. You can take that chicken bone and you can bend it. You can twist it. You can bang it on a table. It will not break. It's like one of those rubber chicken bone toys. Right? It yep. won't break. That's the bone collagen, collagen. That's the quality bone quality that that you that you can that you can see. With respect to uh, bone density and minerals, we see this reflected in the predictive value of the bone density testing. So a test is only as accurate and only as helpful as it can predict an outcome that in medicine we're trying to prevent or avoid. With fractures, the most dangerous thing is breaking a bone. It's not the number on a test. So the question that I teach people in my book and what I go through in my book is helping people create a holistic plan for themselves. And the question that repeatedly I'm teaching people how to ask is if it's a test, the question is, well, how well does this predict my fractures? And mm -hmm. we've known since the 1990s that a bone density test predicts less than 50% of people who will break a bone. In the 2000s, early 2000s, like 2008, I believe it was, a study came out that quantified that even further and showed that for women with osteoporosis, a bone density test only predicts 44% of them who will break a bone and only 21% of men. And yet that is myopically almost the only thing that, that most conventional doctors focus on in the conversations with patients is that number on the test and changing that number on the test. So when you look at the research then on diet, you know, drinking milk or supplemental calcium, 
the research, while calcium has been shown to be beneficial, drinking milk in and of itself, I don't believe is a great way to get that nutrient because dairy also has hormones in it. It has environmental contaminants in it, even organic bacteria in it. There's a blog that I wrote on my my website. You know what's in your milk? I think when it's, when people just search milk, they'll they'll see it. That looks at all the stuff that's in people's people's milk, and what has been shown to be associated with lower risk of osteoporosis and fractures are green leafy vegetables. Eating a whole foods diet, getting enough protein to maintain muscle mass and bone health are important. In fact, 95% of fractures occurs because somebody falls. So anything we can do to reduce the risk of falling, increase balance, increase muscle tone, your actual fitness level and ability to move prevents the fall in the first place. But giving your, your, your body enough of the raw materials, the nutrients required to build muscle and to maintain balance and strong bones. So that's also part of the picture. In fact, if you look at the research, the most consistent predictor of future fractures in osteoporosis is not a bone density test. It's whether it's somebody's gait and Mm. their, how they walk and their mobility. That's the most consistent predictor. You know, I also, this is kind of coattails in my audience, if you've been listening, has heard me say this before, but I was looking at some research that was talking about how much we emphasize measuring people's body mass index, blood pressure, and cholesterol levels. And those are like three things that we look at all the time to say, are they aging healthfully or not? And are we concerned about them as they age? And what they actually were showing in this research is that somebody's ability to perform a squat the ability to get up off the floor from getting all the way down, going all the way down and all the way up was a better predictor of morbidity and mortality than their cholesterol and their blood pressure because your ability to move, to get up off the toilet, to actually be able to take care of yourself in some basic ways of getting around your own home was a greater predictor of whether or not someone was going to end up in more care facilities. And once they were in care facilities, a lot of their social life would change and a lot of other aspects of their environment would change that would increase morbidity and mortality. And we are mostly doing so much emphasis on measuring, you know, a CBC and a chemistry panel and looking at people's lab tests of like, you know, a cholesterol analysis and blood pressure. We are bringing blood sugar and hemoglobin A1C into the picture more But when's the last time that your physician actually measured your fitness level? Can you actually lower yourself all the way down to your ankles and stand all the way up unassisted? And that that metric, similarly about somebody's gait and their mobility to be able to look at those things being better predictors of some of these other aspects of how healthfully can we move through our, you know, our 80s, 90s and beyond. Well, and I love that you talked about morbidity and mortality. If, if, There's one thing in this conversation that I can really emphasize to people is, you know, the what if when we ask the better questions, we're going to get better information that allow us to make better decisions. So when people are looking at, oh, I've got to look at my cholesterol as you mentioned, or I need to look at whatever it is, a bone density test. Think about. I recommend people think about. Well, well, that's a number on a test. What is it really? What's the real risk to me as a person to my body? So whether it's a heart attack or a fracture, you know that. The question then is, has it been shown to predict those things, and how well? Similarly, with an intervention, has it been shown to decrease the risk of a heart attack? And when it comes to mortality, there's not always the data out there. 
It doesn't always exist, but there is a concept called all cause mortality. And that is death from any cause. So when you look at the research, for example, on all cause mortality and exercise, people, I've heard it over and over. You've got to walk 10,000 steps a day. 10, that's the goal, 10,000 steps a day. Well, do you know where that came from, 10,000 steps it a day? It was made up, right? Like it was literally just a metric for their sales. It was yeah. a Japanese watch company yeah. that made it up in order to sell more watches. So yeah. years There's ago- There's no research significance to 10,000 steps. It was just like an arbitrary, they picked it and they used it in their marketing. Yeah, and I've asked people over the years, what I like to do when people make these claims, you know, can you show me the data? I, people get a little annoyed sometimes, especially my <laughs> wife when I, when I keep saying that because she's stuck with me. But, but, but recently, I don't think you've I, been taking the garbage out enough. Yes. But can you show me the data? <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, good thing I've got a, a teenager now. So he did, that's his job. Good. Okay, good. <laughs> but the, the, with, with this, with the steps and that example, I, Finally, people decided to look at this and what was discovered, and there have been multiple studies have done that all you have to do is walk an average of 7,000 to 7,500 steps a day. And the risk of all cause mortality, death from any cause, including osteoporosis, heart disease, whatever it is, is decreased by 50 to 70%. So for me, that was a real relief because 10,000 steps a day always seemed like, oh my God, that's so much. That's so much. But 7,000 on average, you know, that's 30%, 33% less. I can do that. No yep. problem. So there's, there's that, actually a fantastic video that I just double checked. It's still on YouTube. It came out, I think when I was in med school, which, you know, we're going almost 20 years back, almost it's called 23 and a half hours. And it was written by, it was created by a physician. It's one of those fun ones where they actually, he's talking and then they're doing a whiteboard animation of the whole process. And mm -hmm. it's a whole series of research studies packed together about, are you willing to limit your sitting, standing and laying down to only 23 and a half hours out of every day? <laughs> That's the punchline. So basically, if you move, if you walk for a half an hour every day, which is similarly for many people, you'll get, yep. you know, 4,500 to 6,500 yep. steps in a half an hour, depending on how long your gait is. And, and it's how quickly all, it's all moving, cumulative too, right? So park yep. a little further away in the parking lot. It's all exactly throughout the day. It doesn't have to be right. all in one shot. And there was just this massive amount of research of how many things it will alter in terms of depression and mood and overall health and well-being if we move a half an hour a day. And I, you know, the, the phrase is starting to come up more now and now where sitting is the new smoking right? and like, you know, combating that from that standpoint. And, and I've noticed, I would not have called myself some sort of a super athlete before the pandemic, but I have seen my life get even more stationary in the last three years than it was before. There was just way more being out and about activity, going to events, actually meeting people out that just required me to literally move. And I have to be far more conscientious to intentionally move my body now than I did three years ago. It's just been a byproduct. I also moved out into the country, which I love, but I notice it's not as much because I don't have chickens and cows and a ranch that I'm running out in the country. It's just like me in my house. Like I have to be far more intentional and I have gotten a biometric watch and I use it and it makes a difference for me. Oh, and okay. 
I'm enough of a data geek and I like closing circles and getting checkboxes. Yep. So my dopamine <laughs> hits come every day where I'm like, I did the thing. Yeah, love absolutely. It, love it, love it. Yeah. Well, and that, I, I, that speaks to creating a lifestyle that encourages and where just health happens. So I, I, I like to tell people, it, it, don't focus on the outcome, focus on the process. Yeah. If you, when you have the right process, the outcomes, the results will take care of themselves. If you have, if you just have the right process. So if walking becomes part of your day, like I said, you know, park further away. And, and if it's, if it's daunting, you don't want to park all the way across the, the, the parking lot, because that seems too much. Well, just park one row further away than you normally do and do that for a little while. And then go a little bit further. Like you said, those incremental yep. little changes, anything you can do to work activity into your daily life. I, for example, I'm at a standing desk right now. I stand most of the day when, when, when I work. So there are just things that people can do to make health a part of their life so that it doesn't feel like you have to carve it out. I, I believe most people have the mindset in our, in our culture that they're going to live their life and it's pretty unhealthy. They're going to sit all day. They're going to eat crap. And then for a half hour, a few days, a few times a week, they're going to do something healthy yep. and that's going to make up for it. And that's not how physiology, that's not how the body works. You can't exercise away a bad diet and you can't eat away a, a sedentary, sedentary lifestyle, lifestyle. Yep. with a healthy diet. Yeah, It's all connected. Yeah. I frequently with my clients talk about a health bank account and that we have this health bank account and there's lots of ways to make deposits and it's okay to take withdrawals. Like it, it is about the balance. And if you're trying, if your goal is to reverse an illness or you need to literally vastly recover from an injury or there's some significant thing, you're going to have to make a lot more deposits and withdrawals the same way if you had a bunch of credit card debt and you want to clear yourself of those credit cards, you're going to have to that. budget down and alter it. And so that we're working from some days it's going to be diet and water and sleep and other days it might be more fitness and exercise. And then there are those days where the way you're putting a deposit in your health bank account is going on vacation on a cruise with your family and you're drinking a little more alcohol and you're doing some things you don't right. always do. That's this balance point of it. And your health is exactly equal to the balance of that bank account. And you'll know where you stand. And so how do we tip the scales in this accumulative way of each of these pieces? So it's it's right in alignment. I totally love that. Well, and when I'm helping people transition into the diet that I that I teach people to, to follow, I, I tell them just be you know, astringent or follow it for six days out of the week. On the seventh mm -hmm. day, eat whatever you want. Gives them something to look forward to as they're developing that habit, as their taste buds start to change and their, their what their craving starts to change. But in, invariably what happens is people start feeling better. And then on that one day where they go off the wagon and they eat like they were before or whatever they want, they don't feel as well. And they yeah. notice it. Most people are, are living in a state of health that's down here. They don't know what it's like to feel as incredible and wonderful as they can. And so then when they, they don't even know that that's, that's how they're living. So when they start to feel better and then they don't anymore, they're like, oh, wait a minute. I wasn't feeling so great. I feel better. And that's a motivation as well to continue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I usually don't have to tell my my clients to challenge their diet because they sort of invariably will. And then it's like, my biggest thing is awareness, paying attention where we haven't been. That's like, I mean, so another component in building habits, 
I do use trackers a lot and I actually will invite clients to either use a habit tracker app or create just literally a piece of paper at home. You know, it depends. I, I, I find the different personalities and what, what resonates with them. I've That's great. a school teacher who loves checking boxes, right? Like it's like awesome for her. So we've created a checklist and some of it is in the the paying attention to what's actually happening, we will start to notice there was a coaching program that I was actually involved in when they were talking about how to coach somebody to quit smoking. And one of the first things this coach would recommend is that you are only allowed to smoke and only smoke when you're smoking. There's nothing else. No, no distractions, no news, no television, no talking to anyone else. It's the only thing you're doing and the only thing you're paying attention to and to like intentionally focus all your attention on the full experience. Notice how your body feels. Notice how your lungs feel. Notice what it wow. tastes like, like to fully pay attention. And what they came back with is like a fair amount of negative, but also some positives of I slow down. I take deep breaths. I actually relax. I'm out in nature. I get to actually take a break from my work day. And so then they built in replacement habits to keep the positive aspects of what the process of cigarette smoking was actually doing for them while taking the cigarette smoking out. But the key part was this awareness. And that's something I notice a lot is ingrained in a habit is it's easy, it's automatic, and often we do them unconsciously. So if yeah. we're trying to change the habit, how can we bring more awareness to the habit itself to just pay attention to it? And sometimes the paying attention is enough for us to already start to shift. Another one that I've been doing a lot lately is having people slow down and chew their food 31 times. And I'm sure you may know Dr. Dixon Tom. This is one of his favorites and I stole it from him. If you take a Dorito or a, a chip of any kind, I'm not picking on Doritos on purpose, and you chew it 31 times without swallowing, it is not a pleasant experience. <laughs> like you actually can taste the chemicals that are in it. You'll get these metallic flavors. There's bitterness that comes forward. You can actually start to taste wow. the not foodness, the processed aspects of what's in it. And it gets weird in your mouth. And like, it's literally not, but a raisin or even a piece of broccoli, which is the one that most people are surprised by, if you slow down and you chew broccoli 31 times before you swallow it, it gets sweeter. Sweeter. Because you actually, your enzymes in your saliva start to break it down. It liberates carbohydrates. You actually taste more flavor. And initially, raw broccoli in your mouth is kind of like chewing on plastic. Like there's not a whole lot to it. But the more yeah. you actually chew it, you get this whole experience. And so that's another one of like, how do we tune into the things that we're that. doing automatically? And that's not even changing what you're eating. That's just this one step, right? Of chewing your oh, food nice. more, which is also very good for your digestion. Your body has to do less work when we break more of it down with our teeth. And that alone can start to have people be like, this snack that I loved that I would just mindlessly eat at the television, I can't even put it in my mouth now because if I chew it that much, it's gross. And so they're like, moving on to other things in the process. This is great. I'm learning so much from you. I'm, I'm <laughs> thrilled. Awesome. I'm getting some good yeah. tips and I'm going to start using. That's yeah. wonderful. Thank you. So I do want to like, we've touched on this a lot, but I mean, given you literally wrote the book on it, what are your like bottom lines for osteoporosis and osteopenia? Because this is a the subject that I feel like I have many clients that deal with it. And it is a bit of like, there's hopelessness. 
around that diagnosis, right? So we talked about protein, increasing protein. We've talked about checking on pharmaceuticals and how they may be playing a role. What are some other really key things about what people can take a look at to heal their bones? So I think the first thing is, as you're talking about, is awareness. When people come to me, they are so stressed out. They've got, usually already have the diagnosis. Maybe recently have gotten their bone density test results and they're scared and they're the physician who reviewed it with them oftentimes will put the fear of God in them as well. Saying you have to take this medication or you're going to break a bone and, and, and die, or you have to take this medication. If you don't, I won't work with you anymore. I've heard, I've heard heard that that and other, other things as well from, from patients, or they just feel this pressure. They have to make a decision right away. They have to take the medication. Their doctor wants them to take it. They'll disappoint the doctor, or they just don't know what to do. So the first thing that I have people do is just take a breath, take a deep breath. This is not an emergency. There is time to learn. There's time to ask questions and there's time to put your own holistic plan in place so that you're comfortable with it. One of the important concepts in medicine is about informed consent. And that is Do you as the patient have enough information where you feel comfortable that you can make the best decision for yourself? There is time to gather that information with osteoporosis. And so that's one of the fundamental things. The diet is one thing, not just protein, but more of a plant forward diet is is important. Sleep is important. Connection with other people is important. And research shows that. Uh, looking at the medications and hey, is is a medication a good option? There are medications out there in some situations will prevent both vertebral and hip fractures, but not in all cases. So so does yours fit that? Is is that a good choice for you? Are you willing to commit to doing that long term and with the potential risks? There are dietary supplements that have been shown to promote healthy bone density and maintain strong bones. So I just focus on those. If you look at the products out there, in fact, this is the, 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 one of the major reasons why I started my supplement company MBI, which was started in 2006. Uh, I was in clinical practice and I have patients coming in with osteoporosis and I was trying to help them. My mother-in-law has osteoporosis and she did at the time she was working with her physician. She was taking Fosamax. I was helping her a little bit with some supplements, with some nutrients, with some diet recommendations. Her bone density test results were going up. So her physician felt great. I was feeling good. She was feeling great. And then she tripped over a throw rug, fell and broke her hip. Mm. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with this picture? And I started digging into the research. And that's when I discovered how limited that test is, how we're focusing on that number on the test. And it's a, one of the, the least predictive values for the fractures. And so I started digging into the research also then about these nutrients you see in all these supplements, you've got magnesium and boron and obviously calcium and vitamin D and some botanicals. And the question fundamentally that I settled on is not just has it shown to promote healthy bone density, but most importantly, has it been shown to maintain strong bones as indicated by fewer fractures in clinical trials? There are only four nutrients that fit that criteria. Anything else you're getting is theoretical. It hasn't been shown to work at all. It's, it's only, you know, 
And so maybe in a multivitamin, it's good supportive, but when it comes to bone health, I'm very focused. What has been shown to actually work? And then are there other things we can do that are supportive, you know, kind of second line. So those four nutrients are calcium and vitamin D, a specific form of vitamin K2 called MK4. There's another form of vitamin two out there called MK7, which is also in dietary supplements, but it's, ne but it's never been shown to promote healthy bone density and maintain strong bones as indicated by fewer fractures in clinical trials. Only the MK4, 45 milligrams per day has been shown to do that. So much so that it's been approved since 1995 by the Ministry of Health in Japan for bone health. There were 7,000 volunteers in clinical trials with that nutrient in that dose showing it's safe and it works to powerfully promote bone health. And the last nutrient is strontium, which I don't prefer because there are no clinical trials at all on the type of strontium that's available as a dietary supplement in the US. All the, all the clinical trials were done on a form of strontium called strontium ranolate in Europe. And in those clinical trials of that medication, there were five of the six clinical trials only showed that it reduced vertebral fractures and only one showed hip fracture reduction. So it's not that great for both. Yep. But most, more importantly, it gives false bone density test results because it's a mineral. So it incorporates into the bone and then bone density tests is an X-ray. It goes into the bone, it bounces off the minerals and creates an angle, the, the refractive index it's called. And then the machine detects that. And because it's healthy, heavier than calcium, it creates a different angle. And so it shows that the bone density is, is higher and it's what a are you false actually bone testing? density test. Yeah. Then, then it's a false, right? It doesn't give the accurate bone density. And then on top of that though, the strontium ranolate was taken off the market because it was shown that for every one fracture that was prevented, it caused somebody else to have a blood clot that can cause a stroke, a pulmonary embolism, or a heart attack. Yeah. There, are no, there are no safety or outcomes data on strontium citrate, which is what is available in the US. So for those reasons, that's not, I'm not a fan of, of that, although it's quite, quite popular. Understood. Understood. No, this is super helpful. And then, I mean, we only have a few minutes left here and I'm like, I have more questions, but hormone balance comes up a lot in this conversation, particularly around BHRT. And there's conversations of like a certain window of time where women in particular, mostly it's conversation I've heard around women should be, or could be on a certain amount of estrogen and then balance that with the progesterone testosterone as they physiologically need. And I have heard, you know, functional medicine doctors get pretty fierce about their promotion of like, if there's no other reason, this is the reason to be on estrogen is for bone density. And I just personally come from a place of whenever somebody's quite so in fevered about something, I just want to like right. really temper the conversation with a bit of balance. Is that something you would say is like an absolute or, or how do you approach that part of the conversation? You know, that's, that's a great conversation. I, I tend to shy away from hormone replacement therapy when it comes to, to bones so far. So I'm still, I'm digging more and more into the research now. My own position on that and understanding is evolving, mm -hmm. but there is a case to be made for estrogen replacement therapy, obviously for the symptoms of menopause and to promote, you know, healthy bone density and reduce fracture risk. 
in terms of there being, is there a window where, where that's you know only applicable during this window? What are the levels balancing with testosterone, all of that? The bone health benefits from testosterone are thought to come from its conversion, its conversion to estrogen. So even in men, which we do have produced some, some estrogen and estradiol from testosterone, that's where the bone benefits appear to be coming from. And in fact, in pediatrics now, what we're seeing is that as when estradiol gets above 20, that's when the growth plate seems to close and, and growth stops. So one of the emerging strategies in terms of helping children grow higher, grow taller is to give them a little bit of an astrozole, a little bit of a medication Interesting. Uh, to block that conversion to estradiol and keep it below 20 with the hopes that that growth plate will stay open and you can get longer term growth at a, so they can get a, a terminal height that is, that is taller. So I, I, you know, I would say that, that with respect to hormone replacement therapy, I am not an expert at that. I always like to be very very honest yep. with people, you know, what am I, do I believe I'm an expert in? What do I, have I really dived into the research on and what I haven't? And, and estrogen is, is not one of those. And I just think that it's worth balancing. I mean, I just really appreciate your conversation about protein. Cause I don't think that's been said nearly enough at all. And the, you know, vitamin K as a nutrient, one of the primary sources of vitamin K in our diet is dark leafy greens and eating, you know, a lot of great plant plant source nutrition. And so for me, I'm always like, I want to come at the problem from like, what are the, the most lifestyle oriented interventions that are going to not just benefit this one problem, but that are going to benefit somebody's overall health and well-being. And that that yep. is the platform we build off of and start there. And then we may go into more and more targeted specifically therapeutic approaches as we go forward. But, you know, I've seen often a lot of, you know, long-term gut health inflammation problems and correlation to osteoporosis and osteopenia because the body has been constantly under attack from the inflammation in the gut. There is dysbiosis happening. There's long-term sustained inflammation throughout the body that has been constantly being combated. And the more we're able to heal the gut, improve nutrition, improve absorption, that's setting up the whole ability for all body tissues, but also for the bones to be able to, you know, start to actually repair themselves and regenerate. And I've come at it more from that direction than just coming straight from a hormonal standpoint. I, th I think you're, you're spot on with that. I, I want to make a comment on vitamin K and, and food sources of vitamin Great. K. So green, green vitamin K is a category of nutrients. So in green leafy vegetables, you have vitamin K1 called phyloquinone. Right, you can get microgram doses, small doses of that. And yes, there is research supporting for higher amounts of a consumption of vitamin K1 in in the diet that there is a reduction in osteoporosis and fracture risks. The body has the machinery to take vitamin K1 and convert it to MK4. Mm. Right, but MK4 is called is is in the category of vitamin K2. They're different molecules. Clear. M and MK4 and MK7 are both within that subcategory of vitamin K2. The clinical trials on the MK4 that have shown to have benefits, not just for bone health when it comes to uh, people with low bone mineral density, 
But there are vitamin K2 has many roles in the body and specifically MK4 has also been shown to promote healthy platelet production to kill blast cells in people with acute myeloid leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome, improve red blood cell counts in those clinical trials as well. Now it's not a drug in the US, it's just a nutrient as a dietary supplement. It's not intended to you know, diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, but in the doses used shown to promote health in those people, it's milligram doses, 45 milligrams per day. And what you're talking about in diet is micrograms. Micrograms, per day. So understood. Diet is the foundation, absolutely. And then when somebody needs higher amounts of nutrients, need to supplement. And I believe dietary supplements should be used just as the FDA intended. That is a supplement to a healthy diet. Yeah. You're getting the nutrients and now your body just needs a bit more. So let's give it as a supplement. Clear. No, I appreciate that very much. The that these are the the details and the nuances that start to bring in how when you are dealing with something like this, it can make a huge difference to work with a trained practitioner to help actually support how do I make these decisions and what is the difference? And especially when we do go to the supplement world, there's you know 30, 40,000 different products out there at least for people to choose from. And, and it's, I literally have a doctorate degree and I'm still constantly learning about the different nuances in what's out there and what's available and what's the effectiveness. So I really appreciate that level of specificity because it's important. It's important for us to understand and actually do the things that are going to make a difference for our body. John, this has been so great. And I just have loved getting to reconnect with you and getting to have you here and all of your contribution in this conversation. And yeah, I very much look forward to the opportunity to do it again sometime. Me too. This has been great. Awesome. Thank you so much. And if people want to find out more about me and my work. Oh yeah. No, no, I'm so glad you said that. that. It's it's absolutely on the show notes for our page will be your bio, your link to your products that you promote. The, The book information will be all in there. And we always have that included in the, wherever you listen to this podcast, the show notes will be available and then always on my website as well. And you can get access to all of John's resources from today and anything that we spoke about, there'll be specific links that my producer puts together and make sure that it's pretty easy to get access to next steps. So you can actually be in action on those, those healthy habits. Fantastic. Thank you so much, yep. John. You can head on yeah. over to nbihealth.com for, for a lot of that information as well. Perfect. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. John Neustadt, for his dedication and wealth of knowledge. For all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com slash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. Until next time. <laughs>